Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello? This is the Britflix Fryfest preview series 2019. Britflix podcast comes absolutely free, so can I ask a favour? I urge everyone to go over to my iTunes page, Stitcher page, SoundCloud page, or Spotify page, or whatever podcast medium you're using to listen, and please rate and review us. You can just rate us. They all have star meters, which can be clicked on in absolutely no time at all. Just click on it, and you're done, and it'll be really helpful. Trust me. The higher the star meter, the more reviews we get, the more ratings we get, the more the BritFlix.com podcast goes up the charts. Please, please, please. Come on, I'm begging you now. Everyone listening, go to iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud or Spotify pages, type BritFlix.com podcast and rate us. And if you've got a little bit more time on your hands, why not review us as well? Just two or three words of praise will do the world of good. It's really simple and really quick. Now on with the show. Welcome. Take off. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. It's all right. No, it's all right. <laughs> you said three, two, one. So what else could I say? Take off. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> Interestingly, it's the first time I've said three, two, one and not press record, which is what my elongated pause was for. Ah, uh, okay. So uh, I'm going to keep all this in because this is this is a kind of false start start. Um, that is the voice oh, of, and I forgot to ask before we started, so I'm going in blind here. Is it Dima Balling? Dima Balling, yes. Balling. Okay, Dima. Um, I can't believe I got the second name wrong thinking I'd get that right. And the first name It's a wrong. nice Russian Jewish name. Is that what it is? That's what it is. Cool in the gang. Dima is short for Dimitri. Ah, okay, okay, cool. That makes sense now. There are a lot of Dimas in, in Russia. I mean, here in America, I'm, I'm kind of unique, but in Russia, it's, it's, it's very, very common. Is that, the norm, is, that, is that a norm, then? Like a kind of shortening stew, stew from Stuart? Yeah. It's like Dima is the... Stew, stew, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, in Russia, I think, you know, anyone, hardly anyone says Dimitri. I, 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 I think Dima's the norm. Well, look. We've uh, we've not come to talk about the entomology of Russian names, although that would be good. Um, mm. We've come to talk to you about the magnificent obsession of Michael Reeves, a documentary. Yeah, that is and it was fun. pretty magnificent, I have to tell you. Well, yes. Well, that's the first bit I want you to do. So, for the benefit of the audience, can you give us a brief synopsis as to what... There's a huge clue in the title, but do you want to give us a synopsis as to what you think, how, how you best describe what this documentary is? Well, it's a documentary about Mike Reeves, the guy who um, who made, uh, who's most famous for making Witchfinder General and the Sorcerers, and uh, uh, to a certain extent, uh, 
she beast which which i think is a piece of crap but you know uh his other two films are really good but um mike reeves was about to take the british film industry or, or at least the genre film industry in a slightly different uh, direction by um you know putting it in from a from a taking it from a fairy tale setting into the real world mm. you know because which because because his two films were shot on real locations uh for the most part i mean he he did use um he did use a, a studio also for witchfinder general but the settings were very realistic uh more so than with with the hammer horror so you know here's a guy with with a lot of promise and um you know the magnificent obsession you know uh literally started in childhood he he was really obsessed with uh making films that's all he ever wanted to do but he couldn't overcome the family curse of uh manic depression and it killed him and that's that's what the film's about brilliant brilliant uh now I've I've been able to watch I've watched the film it's it's fantastic sort of sort thank of, you um, yeah no it's 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 sort of uh, I do I do a podcast for Britflix called the great five great British horror films mm-hmm. and <clears throat> which find a general is a regular occurrence in people's lists of five there's no doubt sure. about it and obviously contextually given um, the uh, the the formation of the uh, the subgenre folk horror. It's one of the the triumphant of three films that sort of are the root and branch of what is commonly known as folk horror, but wasn't really a term that anyone knew existed till about two thousand and one, I think. Yeah, <clears> I don't know who invented folk horror, but yeah, it certainly didn't exist. Uh, Direct director of pretty recently. Director of Blood and Satan's Claw, whose name escapes me right now. Uh, Pierce Haggard. Yeah, he's he 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 coined it in two thousand and one. We coined it. Okay. Yeah, I think I heard something about that. Which actually. is amazing. Now, before we get into detail about your film, and I know I know we've been messaging backwards and forwards uh, mm. about this. Uh, it's 20th anniversary Fright Fest, and I want a memory or a hazy memory or a complete fabrication of what you think is the <laughs> truth, what you think happened, of what your something from your 20th year. I'll give you. Uh, I, I, I don't think I, I could even give you a uh, hazy memory because I really don't remember. I'm going to have to give you a total fantasy. Good. Um, what happened was I I was uh, standing in a street corner and this uh, Hollywood agent came over and said, uh, you know, would you like to make a, a big blockbuster film? Um, I don't remember what the name of it was, but uh, we'll you know we'll we'll give you a hundred million dollars and you can do whatever you want with it. That's that's what happened when I was twenty years old. Blimey, that was a hell of a uh, pivotal moment in your life. I know. <laughs> <laughs> when I when I thought of this question, it was really kind of throwaway. I just wanted to. I just every year I do the Fright Fest podcast. I what I always have one question I ask everybody. Obviously, it made sense to sort of celebrate the twentieth anniversary. But I really wasn't prepared for how diverse the question, you know, how diverse um, the answers were going to be. And I particularly like the fact that you decided to go with a fiction. Um, what choice did I have? What choice did you have indeed? <laughs> I don't remember what happened uh, when I was 20 years old. It's a, it's a total haze. Um, I was probably just, you know, trying to figure out who I was, which, which, which doesn't sound very interesting. So, you know. 
Well, in a, <clears> in a roundabout way, that's what everyone's answer's been. Because that's what being 20 is about, isn't it? It's about... I suppose, yeah. That's, that's probably true. Which is kind of like yeah. the opposite of a film festival reaching 20. That's like an old mm. man. Yeah. You're, you're a statesman of the scene, aren't you, when you reach 20 film festivals? A good point. Although, which film festival? Uh, the oldest film festival, I think, is the Venice Film Festival, right? And I think that's 75 years old right now. Yeah, yeah, that's a few if years. If I'm not mistaken. A few yeah. years older than, uh, than Cannes. Cannes about, what was Cannes last time, 72? I don't remember. Anyway, we're shooting the breeze. But like Venice, yeah, okay. Yeah, Venice is just famous, uh, you know, because that's where I think uh, Orson Welles took uh, his uh, Othello and uh, a lot of really great films, you know, uh, art house films that we know today uh, premiered there. So that's why uh, I know And that. to be fair, it still, it still has the prestige that, you know... It does, if, yeah. If you've got an art house film you want to have your world premiere, then... There are a few places grander than, than, than it being at Venice. Yeah, oh yeah. Well, sir, Michael Reeves, your documentary, The Magnificent mm. Obsession of Michael Reeves. I mean, in, in the title itself, is that as much a reflection of your own feelings towards him as it is about oh, discovering yes, of course. Michael Reeves' obsession? Of course, this is all psychological. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I, I have my own magnificent obsession. So, uh, <laughs> so I was going to say, so, from, so as a starting point then, why Why make a documentary about, about Michael Reeves? Well, it fell into my lap because um, <clears throat> uh, I've been doing some work, you know, doing extra features for Analyst Entertainment, which mm -hmm. is a German company that uh, releases a lot of um, vintage genre films. And it's, and it's a great company. They really, it's, it's um, they are small, but they're among the best in the world, if, if not the best in the world, as far as I'm concerned, because uh, for their quality, for uh, the amount of care and uh, effort they put into the extra features and all that stuff. So I've been doing work for them, and they asked me to uh, do a little featurette for their upcoming release of The Sorcerers, which okay. is uh, going to be released in September. Cool. And, uh, you know, this was like, this was like, I think at the end of last year. And I said, yeah, yeah, fine. I'll, I'll, I'll do it. You know, it'll take me a month. No problem. So six months later, I, I finished this film for them. And it's, and it's now not a, a half hour film. It's a feature film and mm -hmm. it uh, covers his entire career. You know, well, he, it, his whole life really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because his life, you know, I mean, he was a young guy when he died, obviously. So he 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 didn't have time to become a really interesting person. But it, it he's he, he he was still an interesting person. Uh, he was still an interesting person, if if only for uh, the intensity of 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 his obsession, which I can certainly relate to. And it's. And given given that he was um, he fell fell victim to the sort of the, the family the, the family curse of, of, of depression, it's 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 a fascinating parallel, isn't it? Not fascinating, it's not the right word. That that depression and sort of expression, artistic expression, are often close bedfellows. Well, yeah, uh, sometimes. Although I think uh, David Lynch would contradict that. I, I, I think, 
I think uh, David Lynch actually said this, uh, that depression is not a good thing for creativity. Um, I don't oh, think I'm, depression I'm not, is... I'm not so much saying it's a good thing. It's just that it's, you know, it's, it's maybe, you know, artistic impression, a bit like, you know, doing excessive sport is just a way of sort of, is a way of, you know, managing it yourself, you know. Well, I think that... Um, I, you know, um, I suspect this is just a purely personal suspe- suspicion of mine, but I suspect that most really creative people, uh, especially brilliant people, are somehow neuroatypical in one way or another, whether it's depression, whether it's ADHD, whether it's, you know, just something else, you know, uh, because that intensity, that, 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 um, that sense of madness that makes a work of art truly great has to come from somewhere. Mm. Uh, the, you know, that, that requires a certain amount of madness, I think, on the part of the artist. And there's always that root, root cause of, of, of all good art, in a sense, that the person is compelled. They don't want to. The yes, exactly. You, you you become you become a slave of well, uh, not a slave. You become a, a a vessel through which the the artwork passes. It, you know, <clears throat> as a matter of fact, Igor Stravinsky said exactly that. He he said that I am the vessel through which um, the rite of spring passed. Mm. Um, he said exactly that, and and I think that's exactly the way it works but it well you know mozart said that it uh, it just takes love and i think what he meant by that is that um it takes it takes it takes an intense desire intense intense uh desire to create something really great because that kind of desire is what gives you the focus you know the perseverance and frankly the clarity of vision because without it, you know, what, what are you going to do? You can, you know, <clears throat> does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, no. It's. I remember I remember reading in, uh, there's, a, there's a book by a guy called Stephen Pressfield called called The War of Art. And and he, talk, mm. he talks a lot about that idea. It's a push and pull thing. Because you can, you can start, you can investigate something. And you go, will I like doing this? And you might well try painting, you might try writing, you might try filmmaking, or what it might be, and you might find you don't like it, and that's not the itch you're trying to scratch. But when right. you find the itch you're trying to scratch, then suddenly you can be taken over by that, and you know, as long as you're compelled, mm-hmm. you'll do it. But if you don't, and it is the reason he uses that is because he talks about the fact that when you're no longer compelled, that's when you'll stop. <laughs> you know, and that's right. quite, that's a natural end to that's... it. That's exact, that's a natural end. Yeah, people, people, some people eventually lose their compulsion. Yeah, mm. some people don't. Um, uh, I mean, <clears throat> Kurosawa worked into his nineties, which is amazing, which is rare. Yeah, but he did that. Now, obviously, the list, the, the British listener listening in will will get that your accent's not not from uh, down the East End or uh, <laughs> up, the, up the north of England. So, hey, mate. <laughs> Um, is, is, can... um, I know the British swear a lot, okay, especially the really posh ones. Do we fuck? 
Uh, <laughs> my, my girlfriend taught me that she's British. <laughs> but well, the reason, I, the reason I bring that up is, is because I think sometimes when you when you're from a place where someone who's thought of as highly as Michael Reeves might be outside mm. of Britain, it's hard to see why why he's a sort of an important you know nodal point in the UK film industry. So as you you as the voice of the outsider looking in at Britain, what is it? that Michael Reeves has added to not just obviously UK film, but in terms of genre film for, for, for obviously a man that's basically made, you know, the, his canon is two good films and one not very good film. Mm. Well, I'll be honest with you. I'm not a film historian. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's my girlfriend, Kat Ellinger. She mm. is, well, she's really the one who wrote the scenario for uh, this film. And right. when I say she wrote the scenario, there's no real narration in it, so we couldn't say it was written by her because there was nothing to write. I mean, she she came up with the scenario, she came up with the questions, the interview questions. Mm. So um, she wrote the scenario for uh, uh, for this film. So I, you know, I almost wish that she was answering this <laughs> instead of me because. Um, well, I kind of said this already, I think. I think that uh, Mike Reeves took the genre from a kind of a studio-ish setting and put it into the real world. Uh, now, he shot parts of Witchfinder General in a studio, some interiors, but they, the, the, they were very realistic. They were less stylized than, mm. you know, what you see in a Hammer film. You know, and I uh, I love Hammer films. I'm not, I'm not, you know, disparaging them in any way, shape, or form. He was going to shoot more. He was going to direct more horror films for AIP. Mm -hmm. uh, his next film, I think, was going to be the Oblong Box, um, and it would have been interesting to see what he would have made of that because the because the Oblong Box. I I personally don't like that film. That's just my own thing, and mm. I and I don't like it because of the director. I think I think it's badly directed. Uh, I think it would have been very interesting to see what Mike would have made of it. Um, he was going to direct other films for AIP as well, probably. Uh, ultimately, I don't think he would have he would have continued making genre films for too long because according to his friend Ian Ogilvy, uh, Mike didn't particularly care for the horror genre. He you know, he he was following he was following in the footsteps of uh, his mentor Don Siegel, uh, mm. who of course was famous for making thrillers and you know police dramas and stuff like that. Um, and I think um, Mike's favorite film of all time could have been Don Siegel's The Killers, which mm. is which is this elaborate adaptation of the Hemingway short story. Um, very loosely based. So he would have probably gone in that direction. Um, he was making genre films at the time because you can make money making genre films, and he just wanted to establish himself. Um, at that time, Genre films, you, you almost guarantee to make money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was it. I mean, you know, you know. Again, this is just according to Ian. Uh, he didn't have any love for the genre at all. But you know, and 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 so it's amazing how how much he, how much influence he had over it. 
But that's kind of, I mean, but, but that's, in a way, that's, it's not good or bad news. It's like he had a love of cinema, didn't he? So that's, He had a lot of cinema, exactly, yeah. That's what he brought to his films. And so being good cinema and a horror film is, you know, it's not a disease, is it, kind of thing? No, it's not. I mean, look, some people start off making porn. It's, mm. it, it's fine. You know, it's all, it's all good. Yeah, 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 yeah. Whatever. Yeah. In terms, in terms of making this documentary, then uh, obviously it's 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 a compilation of uh, intercut of different talking heads, people close to him, his, writers who look back on on his career and the time when his films were being made and the like. Mm. What was the process for you pulling all that together? You said that Cat was writing the questions for the interviews and stuff. So what was were you were you shooting the interviews and? No, we had to hire, um, because the interviews, the interviewees were scattered all over the world. Okay. We just had to ask, um, local camera people to go and shoot the, uh, these interviews right. with our questions. Mm-hmm. And that was it. Um, the whole film really was put together on a computer. Um, you know, it's, this is, this is almost more like an animation film than, than, well let's, well, let's let's stay with this then. So, so in that sense, then, so if, if if all these various local film crews are are doing are doing are helping you to avoid having to do the mileage, then when you've mm-hmm. got your how many hours of footage did you have to sort of compile down to what is a, a ninety minute movie? We had six interviewees, I guess. Uh-huh. Six interviewees. Uh, each one of them probably yielded um, anywhere from a half an hour to. An hour and a half. Okay. Worth of footage. So that's it. I mean, it's um, the process of putting together a film like this is is more in terms of um, finding, you know, sort of going through what you have and trying to extract a narrative out of it. It's yeah. not. It's not really a written film. You know, there's no script. No, that's, that was going to be my next question. So, so in terms of that sort of seven or eight hours of interviews you might have compiled, what then did you do? How, how did you and Kat go about identifying the narrative that you that you had? Because I'm guessing your questions were hopefully forcing a narrative onto people, as it were. Because you would have had a there's, there's a there's obviously a public history of who he was, but then mm-hmm. there's what you find out from the people that get interviewed. Yeah, it's a it's a balancing act actually. Um, I had in mind uh, once I figured out what the story was, mm-hmm. which is which is like I said, this young man who was obsessed with cinema. Right. And that's all all he wanted to do, and then he gradually succumbed to his family curse. So once I knew what the story was, then it became easier because then I would just extract the stuff that. Um, would support that narrative and you know there are certain detours along the way certain asides you know people um you know his friends they would say things maybe that were unexpected that i that i didn't expect but which i thought might be interesting Hmm. but in some way they all had to support the main narrative there had to be a unity of vision because otherwise the flow would be interrupted and so I was just trying to be sensitive to that. Um, actually, to begin with, let me back up a little bit. Yeah. When I, um, 
when we did the initial batch of interviews for for, for the featurette, mm-hmm. okay, which was when it was still going to be a, a half hour featurette, we had four interviews. Uh, one, two, three, four. Yeah, we had four interviews, and one of them was by Ben Halligan, who was a Reeves biographer. Okay. He was a really inter- it was a really interesting guy. He's a he's a film scholar, and he gave me like over an hour like an hour's worth of stuff, probably longer. And there was so much in it. I mean, he, he just he just went from the beginning of his life to the end of his life. There was so much in it that that's what made me realize that there was a much more interesting story here than just the sorcerers. And so I, I put together kind of an initial uh, draft of the film. Right. Uh, Based on his life story, so this was not a sorcerer's story anymore. Uh, and I showed it to Kat, and she told me this really sucks <laughs> because because uh, it it's just mostly Ben like saying everything. <laughs> There's nothing, you know. It, it's it's great, but it's just one person, you know. Mm. Um, so 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 she and I went through the whole thing, and we figured out what else it needed, like where we needed more um, supporting evidence, and so we did several more interviews. Yeah, and uh, we incorporated them, and that's when it really became a film. That's when it started started to take shape. That's when I kind of understood what the story really was, because up to that point, I was kind of aiming in the dark. I wasn't sure, you know, exactly. It was it was partially about the sorcerers, it was partially about his life, and it was kind of uneven. And it's it's easy to get lost in something like that when you're so close to your own work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's what happened to me. And uh, you know, I I suppose it's um, it's it's my lack of experience, really. But um, once. Cat intervened, and once, uh, and she helped me figure out what was needed. That's when I got the flow of the story. And once I got the flow of the story, then I just put it together. Then it wasn't that hard. So, what kind, what kind of sort of narrative direction was was Cat able to steer you along? She didn't so much steer me along a narrative direction. The narrative direction was mine. I kind of knew what I wanted it to be. I just didn't know how to how to to put it together in a way that would would give me what I want, and that's what she helped me with. She she told me what was missing and what was wrong with it and I what see, else it needed. I see, I see. And so that's that's what really helped me to um, figure out what the story was. So it it it, it, it really was a joint effort. Got you. In that respect. From having done the documentary, what would you say has been your sort of um, biggest surprise about that you've discovered about Michael Reeves having gone through the process of now having made a feature-length documentary about him? I think my biggest surprise was just the extent of his obsession, really, or, or I should say, really the strength of his obsession. Hmm. Uh, I never knew that he was he was really obsessed with film from the age of eight, at least, maybe even before that, but you know, at, at least at the age of eight. Hmm. Uh, that didn't even happen to me. I became obsessed with film probably at age 12, 13. So at eight, I mean, I, I wasn't even cognizant of anything like that. So it's, it's really amazing that at eight, he already knew that he wanted to be a director. I, I, I think, I think that was amazing. 
his mother seemed to be, uh, you know, according to um, his friend Tom Baker, his mother was very liberal. She was very yeah. kind of, you know, she. But uh, they had money too, so yeah. she, you know, that that helps. Of course, it does. Of course, yeah. But he, but he was. Obviously, I'm just thinking of like him going to like you know public school, which is obviously the top end of the school, yeah. and then and still now. So he would have yeah. he would have been living in a very conservative world. Yes, and I'm sure he rebelled in his own way. Well, mm. he 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 did through film, mm. which is which is exactly what happened to me a little bit later when I was a teenager. Um, I rebelled by making films. So I I kind of you know I kind of understand him. I think uh, instinctively. I, d- I mean, as, as a de- as a demonstration of his. Of, of showing that obsession, I, I love the uh, the story you managed to to find from someone about his uh, when when he went on a fa- I think it was a family trip to to the northeast, sort of Boston somewhere, yeah. and then he takes it upon himself to go to L.A. and and do a bit of door knocking. Yeah, and he and he goes to uh, to uh, Don Siegel's house and yeah. knocks and says hello and yeah, yeah see that's uh, that's why that's why it was successful. That's that's the big difference between he and I is that I wouldn't have the balls to do that. <laughs> uh, I I I, uh, I might now, but then no, never, mm. <laughs> never. I was too shy. <clears throat> um, one of one of the one of the obviously very tragic things is 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 the age he died at, and it's one of the things that. I guess I guess it goes in cycles. Of sort of, you, you're aware of him. You know he died young, and then you kind of you lose that memory to to, the, to you know to the passing of time, and you think about other things. And it's then when it came, just watching you watching your film, you kind of you see all that potential and all that energy and enthusiasm and ver and verve to want to to do this, and then it's mm-hmm. bump. It's it, he's still 25. You know, when 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 uh... yeah, he'll he'll always be twenty five. Yeah, and um, that's that's what that's what Ian said actually is that uh, you know that's that's probably a big part of the reason why we're so fascinated with him is because you know it's um, um, what you know we wonder what could have been. So let's tell people then when can they see the uh, magnificent obsession? Well, when do you want to see it? I mean, how how fast do you want to see it? No, I've seen it. <laughs> oh, you've seen it. That's but right. I, I forgot. To, Sorry. What I mean is, we're, we're doing this as a preview ahead of Fright Fest. So when can okay, well, see? Fright Fest would be a great way to see it actually, because it's because it's a big screen. Uh, I have no idea what the film looks like on a big screen because I put it together on on a on my computer. Uh, I didn't have a big studio or anything. Um, I must. I, I'm. I'm. I'm probably. You know. This. This is probably true. I'm. I'm probably one of the few filmmakers who makes a feature film sitting in his underwear. I bet you're not alone. But you're one of the few. <laughs> you're one of the few that's going to tell someone on the podcast that you do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay. You're right about that. Well, if it makes you feel better, um, it's been very hot in Britain of late, and I and I have been in the last sort of ten days. Largely sat in my pants typing scripts. Yeah, well, it, it's kind of hot here too. That's funny. Yes, I I feel your pain. I know. Well, look, sir, I'm going to put a link in the show notes. It's. it's- oh, actually, no. I'm sorry. Okay, so so the best way to see the film is uh, at Fright Fest. I think um, it's it's at the end of August. I forgot the exact date, but I'm it's at the end of August. Tell, I'm going to tell you Sunday the 25th 
It's in the city in the city world Leicester Square Discovery screen, and it's on at three forty five p.m. The second best way to see it is uh, to buy the Blu-ray from Annals Entertainment. Mm. And when's the Blu-ray just coming be available? Up. <clears throat> September. Fantastic. Well, Don't know the exact date, but September. Um, yeah, you, you can order it obviously from Amazon Germany or something like that. Cool. Well, we'll we'll put a link in the show notes to where people can pre-order it if that's possible. Um, All right. Yeah. And it just gives me to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the Brickflix podcast. Thank you. It's been awesome. Thank you. The Brickflix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review iTunes or if you want to help me out directly there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page all contributions are welcome and the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.